right, everyone. Thank you for joining us again. This is uh, the KSL Podcast, Episode 3, Part 2. I am back with my guest, John Wilson. Uh, we're going to finish off the, the conversation today, John. And so, first things, how, how are you doing? How, Good. Doing great. Thank you. All right. Any uh, any new developments, any things going on since the last time we spoke? I know you've been busy. Uh, yeah, nonstop. I mean, that could be another podcast about how busy we are. Right. Yeah, no, <laughs> no kidding. But yeah, in the meantime, we've uh, we've really, company-wide, we've just been on a tour across the state of California and even into Washington doing several projects. So so now that we're back with uh, our listeners, John, uh, let's let's keep things going. Let's keep the momentum going. So what, what do you want to share further with, with your story? So, Paul, last time we left off, I mean, I was mentioning that, you know, we were in the hallway. Uh, there was a major gunfight, about 15 minutes long. I'm shot. Um, I have a bullet in my body. I don't know where it's at. I don't know what's happening. And I'm out in the parking lot being taken care of, and, and I'm watching Bob French die. And they load me into a, an ambulance, and uh, they put an IV in me, and they start to cut my glove off, and I tell them, don't do it. Because I'm shot in the hand and my fingers blown apart and my hands just completely destroyed and there's a giant hole in my wrist and I have a tourniquet on and uh, and of course I don't know what's going on with the bullet on my back because there's no end exit wound and so they 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 rush me code three to UC Davis lights and siren through rush hour traffic around noontime and we get there and I remember that they pulled me out of the ambulance and everyone was waiting at the hospital all the triage uh, and they had at least three bays ready to go three sets of curtains and. So I'm expecting to see two other cops because I'm like the last one to leave and nobody's there. And I start asking like, where are the other officers? And they're like, there's no other officers. It's just you. No, no, my partner should be here. My other partner should be here. Like, where is everybody? And they're like, you're it. That was a little nerve wracking. They start working on me and they, you know, start cutting off your clothes and whatnot. And they, they're looking for the exit wound and they can't find it. And they're talking about my hand and they rush me to a CT scan. That was the first priority. And they put me in the machine. And when you get into a CT scan machine, it's like a bed with a big donut on the end. And they push you into the donut and it spins up really, really fast, like a magnet. And there's a machine of a computer voice, if you will. And it says, breathe normal, breathe normal. And then once the machine spins up, it says, hold your breath, hold your breath, a very robotic kind of stoic voice. And I remember holding my breath and trying to hold still because it was the pain was just so bad. And then they, the lady, the, the, the technician said that they were going to put an IV in me. And she said, it's, it's a radioactive dye. You'll be able to taste it and smell it and it'll feel really warm. I'm like, okay. And then they pushed me back in the machine and, you know, breathe normal, breathe normal, hold your breath hold your breath and the cycle completes and the the surgeon she comes in and she she takes a look at it and she kind of whispers down into my ear hey congratulations it's non-fatal so the bullet had gone into my back around my belt line and then traveled four inches in two different directions because the bullet separated from the the jacket and Mm -hmm. the uh, the Mm -hmm. core and uh i had a 460 milliliter hole in my back that ripped across my muscles uh that's the equivalent of a bottle of water your small bottle of water about a half, okay. half a liter. And then they pushed me over to the x-ray machine. And they, they put my hand on there, and the hand's just obliterated. Um, it was difficult. I, I That night, I go into surgery. Um, they put a bunch of scaffolding in my hands. 
or my hand with pins going across all the bones and just trying to hold this thing together. But the x-ray showed that my whole hand was just obliterated on the inside uh, from the ring finger all the way down to the wrist. Mm-hmm. And that section, because that, that round, uh, the DA's office said it was an AK-47 round, but I believe it was a 9 mil round. Significant damage. Uh, I couldn't move my hand. It was completely bandaged up. I wake up, you know, well after midnight after surgery, and I wake up the next morning, and uh, they I'm in a recovery room. And... It was hard, you know. The every time I closed my eyes, um, I was in that hallway, yeah. and rounds are just blowing all up, up all over me. And I'm sometimes I'm getting shot, sometimes I'm not, and I'm just reliving the event over and over and over. And it's it's starting right. The hard part's starting. Yeah. The shooting was the easy part, and you know, I was about to learn very quickly that the body will heal really really quick, but if we don't do the work ahead of time. And if we don't do the right stuff during, you know, some of the hardest parts, uh, the mind doesn't, and the soul and the spirit doesn't doesn't heal as quickly. Um, I spent two or three days in the hospital. It was hard, uh, but they they took good care of me. And my partners rotated in, and I had one partner in particular to stay with me almost the entire time. And I finally get to go home, and you know, and I'm watching on the news now the uh, of what occurred, and 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 what had happened is about two hours later, my captain walked up and he said, "Hey, I have, I have news for you." And he's and I go ahead and he said, Bob died, and I'm like oh, I was devastated because you know that was my that was my shooting, and if I had taken out that threat, that maybe that threat wouldn't have hurt other people, and I felt really really guilty about that. But I also learned that my partner was okay, uh, my direct partner, my detective partner. Uh, he had been shot and, and it went in his chest and and it, and it traveled through his body, but he was going to be all right. So we were both going to be okay. And I remember later not really believing that until I heard his voice on the phone and it being really, really important to me to know that he was alive. I went home and about three or four days later, my captain called me and said, hey, uh, I want you to know something. Uh, you're the first person to know this, but the, uh, the person who tried to kill you and, and killed Bob and tried to kill your partner, uh, he, he passed away this morning. And I paused and I thought about it. And, I was, and he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm good. Um, he said, do you need anything? And, you know, we're here for you. And I said, no, I'm okay. And I was in the house by myself when I got that call. I don't know where my wife was or my kids were probably in school. How long ago, how, how long after the initial incident was this? Probably three or f- about four days. Okay, when, okay. When the bad guy had died. Okay. And... So you went home really Really fast. Pretty fast. I was yeah. really, really motivated, and that was part of the problem. And I'll, and I'll talk about that in a moment, um, of trying to heal too quickly, if that makes sense. Okay. Because uh, I'm a very, I tend to be fairly motivated and kind of high frequency kind of guy. And I kept telling everybody, I'll be back at work in two weeks. And of course, you know, that wasn't going to happen. But I kept saying that. And I remember around day four when my captain called me and told me that he had died, that the man had died. I had to make a decision at that moment. If I was going to heal, if I was going to be the best that I could be, I had to do what I did next. And I, I got up off the chase lounge, and I was, you know, hurting bad. I, I could barely walk, you know, the bullet wound and my hand and just any movement. I was just hurting really bad. But I got up out, off the, the couch, and I walked to my front door. This, this may sound strange, but you just, you just got to go with it. I stood at the front door, and I said, and I was, I was talking to what I call the enemy. The enemy could have been that man that tried to kill us. It could have been just the negativity of the whole thing, everything. Mm-hmm. And I said, stay away from my family. Stay away from my wife and my kids. 
stay out of my home and stay away from me. And I opened the door and I swear I felt just a rush leave my home. It was really weird. It was probably the air conditioning, but still. Um, Negative energy as far as you're concerned. And that's all it needed to be to me. Right. And at that moment when I said that and I shut the door, I had to make one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. And that decision was to forgive that guy. To forgive that guy for what he did. And in fact, Paul, because I knew we were going to come today and, and record this, I want you to know something. Last night I had a dream. The mo- one of the most realistic dreams I've ever had. I was in uniform. I was in the Sacramento area. Which in this case, in this situation, I wasn't in uniform. I was in plain clothes. So I don't know why I was in uniform in my dream. And my dream kind of faded off to a different type of place. And I saw the man who tried to kill me in, in like a hospital bed. And he was sitting there. And he looked up at me and he was crying. And he kept saying he was so sorry for what he did. And at first, I just unleashed on him in my dream last night. Mm-hmm. This is hours ago. Yeah. I unleashed on him. I told him how much damage he had caused and how, how, you know, how he ruined careers and relationships and caused so much pain and didn't care about what he did just so what? So he wouldn't have to go to jail for doing something wrong for a while? And in my dream last night, he was begging for my forgiveness. And he was saying how sorry he was. And I don't know if maybe this very moment right now and that dream coupled together are, you know, moving towards finality and maybe true forgiveness and, you know, in a step towards, you know, ultimate healing. But I just thought I would say that to you, that I had that dream last night and, and I've never had a dream like that. You know, and, and one of the things doing this job for a long time and getting to have relationships with people who have been involved in things, you know, that are similar is, you know, I can't express enough that we got to put the weights down at some point, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. we, we carry a lot of weight around, and we don't do anybody any service by going, oh, I can carry a little bit more, right? right? Or I can carry a little bit longer. Right. You know, it doesn't it doesn't do us any, any good. And I think if someone has wronged us, that if we choose not to forgive them and to, to, to carry that burden, we're not hurting that person. We're hurting us. Right, right. We're hurting ourselves. I made that decision, and, and I had to make a second decision, too, that I was literally going to get better, not bitter. I knew that if I didn't forgive him and I didn't work towards getting better, that I was going, it was going to destroy me. And I would get bitter and I would get worse. And what I wouldn't do at that point if I started to get bitter is I wouldn't be denying the enemy his power. And I think by forgiving him and getting better instead of bitter that that's exactly what I was doing, is denying the enemy. And I had to work on that. But there was a major obstacle. You see, I still had to fix my hand. Right. My hand didn't work. I couldn't do it. I couldn't tear a tissue in half. And I had all my fingers at the time, and they put all the scaffolding and stuff in there, and it was just not working. The bones were mush. And I asked the doctor to cut my finger off, cut my ring finger off, and leave the bones inside my hand. And he's like, well, no, we don't do that. And I'm like, I need you to. And he's like, why? I go, I need, to, I need to carry my pistol properly. He goes, well, we'll just leave the finger on there and you can carry it. It'll be just fine, but your finger will stick out. I go, no, you've, you've never searched somebody with tight jeans or tried to handcuff somebody or tried to right. fight someone. I don't want my finger sticking out. It's a worthless finger. Cut it off. And he's like, well, let me consult with my colleagues. And long story short, uh, they cut my finger off. Yeah, so yeah. And, and we moved on from there. And I had to start, you know, I, I, I had to start healing. The healing process was a fight, though. You know, and I needed a lot of motivation. Um, again, my hand didn't work at all. I couldn't make a fist. I couldn't open my hand. It was just dead. Mm-hmm. I could move my thumb a little bit and my, my finger, and I thought, I'm screwed. And I needed motivation. It's very interesting. I got motivation from a child, uh, a child who lives in Las Vegas. 
And he oh. sent me a letter. Yeah, and I, I want to read it to you right now if you okay. want to hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I got it in the mail, and it just said, Officer, I, I saw on the news that you were hurt, and I'm glad you'll be okay. I hope people start being nicer to police and keep you safe, too. I am writing this letter to let you know that people still care. And I leave notes on patrol cars around Las Vegas, and I want you wow. to have one, too. And then when you go back to work and you're having a bad day, then maybe it'll remind you of the good that you do. You see, I, I want to be a detective when I grow up, and I hope to be as brave as you. Get well. Thank you for all that you do. Stay safe from Jacob, enclosed with a Batman sticker. Oh, man. And I was like, you know what? That's all I needed. Thank you. A child. That's cool. And I went to the, uh, the academy where our agency is at, and there's a memorial in the middle of it with a plaque with every name that of an officer who has died in our agency. And the last plaque was Lucas Shalou, who had died on February 22nd, 2017, in South Sacramento. And I worked that case, and I interrogated the bad guy who caused his death, and I was very close to that situation. And, and I sat there, and I just kept staring at that plaque, because right next to it probably should have been my name mm-hmm. on a plaque with August 30th, 2017, less than six months later. And I, need, and I got the motivation from that child with that letter, and I went down to the academy, and I just sat at the fountain and just listened. And I just listened for reason and for motivation, and I got motivated. I went back home, and what I heard at that fountain was, keep fighting. Don't give up. There's still more. You still have more to offer. Don't get bitter. Get better. Let's rock and roll. And the next morning, I went home. And I put on my running gear and I walked outside. I go, you know what? We're going to do this. And, and this is probably two, three weeks later. Okay. And <clears throat> I can still barely walk, but I'm like, let's do it. You know, I was training for an ultra marathon right before this happened for a hundred mile race. And I went outside and I walked about a hundred yards and I almost vomited. I was so sick. I was so hurt. But I said, you know what? And I drew a little line on the side of the road on the shoulder. And I said, tomorrow, I'm going to step past that line. And I did that every single day. A little bit further and it got exponential and around November I called my cousin Mike and he's my kind of my ultra running buddy and I said hey I, I need to go for a run and he started laughing at me like you can't run you can barely walk I'm like we can do it so it was around November so we're talking a couple months later yeah and I think our first run was 18 miles so it was pretty good significant improvement I had told my wife that uh, I needed my tablet and my wallet around November and she's like what are you gonna buy I go you'll see and I signed up for Ironman a 2.4 mile swim with a 112 mile bike ride with yeah. a marathon and you have to finish in 17 hours and she's like what are you doing and I'm like don't worry about it it's like a year away it's not until like August because that was going to be kind of a thing for me and I got the email confirmation and next thing you know it said oh sorry the date's been changed to May 12th in Santa Rosa Ironman and I'm like oh shoot I think uh, I made yeah. a mistake right right I mean I could I, I could barely still run or, yeah. and, and I could definitely couldn't ride a bike and, and so I, I want to mention that here in a bit but Around the same time period, my wife was coming down the stairs and, you know, especially in the thick of it, she was giving me all my medications and taking care of all my medical stuff and giving me rides to the, to the doctor's offices. I was going through so many appointments for psychology, for, you know, for uh, uh, orthopedics and just mm-hmm. you name it. Yeah. And she was coming down the stairs and she's about four or five steps down and I said, hey, she's like, what? And I just looked at her and I said, you're fired. And she went, what? Well, what are you talking about? I go, you're fired. You're done. I, I don't want you to help me anymore. I don't want you to give me medications. I don't want you to make my food. I don't want you to take me to the doctors. You're fired. And she just kind of started laughing. And she's like, are you serious? And I'm like, I'm serious. And what happened next was very interesting to me. And it made me feel so, I felt like a, like a jerk. She just kind of fell down to the steps. 
in a seated position and just started crying. And I realized at that moment that ever since I had been shot, you see, I was in rest mode and recovery mode, but mm. she was still redlining completely. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when I said that to her, I don't know if it was the ultimate insult or the ultimate release. It was probably a little bit of both. Yeah, it's probably both. I was just going to say that. I definitely should have went about that conversation a little bit differently. Um, but at that moment, I also realized that both of us needed employee assistance or our employee assistance program. And we mm-hmm. paid through it through our insurance. She went to a counselor. I called my cap and said, I need help. I'm hurting because something else that was happening on the side was um, I started drinking. Uh, I started drinking a lot of beer, and way, way more than I think would be healthy especially when it's like 8.30 or 9 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And because I was just depressed, I, I felt guilty. Um, I felt alone. Even though people were all around me, you know, begging to help, I kept denying everybody. I got this. I got this. And I finally started the process of, of, of seeking help and, and getting the help that I needed. It was really, really important. And I, but I still couldn't move my hand. My hand was still all messed up. And I remember the exact date. Uh, that I got my hand back and uh, I went to the the physical therapist and I told her I'm like I'm I'm, I'm tired of this I I can't move my hand it won't work it won't come back to life she brought a mirror and I put my hurt hand behind the mirror where I couldn't see it and then my good hand and when you sit there and look down at the mirror it looks like your both hands are there and she just had me touching my fingers to my thumbs one two three four one two three four where on one hand is three but the other hand's four and all of a sudden about 15 or 20 minutes of doing that my hand came back. I, I couldn't believe it. It was one of the best days. I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I went home and I took some wooden guns that were traced off of my service pistol. And I held them in my hands. I stuck them into the couch and I would just push on them. And, and I would get my wrist stronger and stronger. And I got to the point now where I could get down on the floor and do push-ups with those guns in my hands. Using just the, the end of the pistol as mm-hmm. like my stabilization and my, the leg. And I started doing push-ups. And then I started doing pull-ups. And I got to the point where I could do three sets of six pull-ups and I was doing, you know, 25, 50, 75 push-ups with, you know, a broken wrist. It was scary, but it was healing. And uh, four months to the day, I went to UC Davis to my, my doctor and I said, hey, I want you to sign this form. And he's like, what? Let me see that. And, and I had pre-written everything on there. John can go back to work. John's fine. John can do any task. He was 100%, 100% duty. And he laughed at me and he goes, I'm not signing that. And I go, well, why not? And three words I remember, you are disabled. And I was like, okay. And I and he didn't know this, but I had a little backpack and I pulled out these two guns. He probably thought I was crazy or something at that point, but they were yeah. wood. They were made of wood. <laughs> yeah. And I said, no problem. And I took out those two guns and I slapped them on the floor. I got up in the push-up, push-up position and I grabbed those two pistols and put the end of the pistol into the floor. And it was like that nice hospital floor. So mm-hmm. I was afraid I was going to slip. Yeah. And I started doing push-ups. And I got to about 25, and I looked up at him, straight-faced stoic. And I got up, and I slapped the two guns together and put them on his desk. And I walked over to the door, and I grabbed the door ceiling, and I started doing pull-ups on the door. I did like six, because I didn't want to get too tired, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I jumped back down, and I walked over to him, and I slid the piece of paper in front of him. And I said, Doc, don't call me disabled. Let me go back to work. Mm. Let me do what I need to do. He didn't say a word. He took his pen out, he signed the form, he slid it across, he started walking out the door, he paused at the same spot where I had just done pull-ups, he turned back and all he said was good luck. And then he walked away and I never saw him again. And then the next day, I went to my psychologist and said, you know, because I was diagnosed with PTSD and, and I told her, I said, I have to go back to work. 
And then I, I told her what I did the day before, but I was not going to do that at the psychologist's office. <laughs> but I'm not pulling guns out, of, yeah, even right. fake yeah. ones, right? Yeah. And I didn't think that would be a good thing. And she ended up signing the form, too. And so I was really happy. And, I, and before I went to my office where I worked as a detective, I went back to the academy and I went back to the memorial. And I sat down and I, and I thanked those officers that gave their life. And I told them that I wasn't going to give up, you know, that I was going to keep moving forward. And, uh, and I went back to work and I qualified on my pistol and my rifle and the shotgun and the taser and everything. And I got back to work and I actually had to take my own gun out of an evidence box and wipe the blood off of it. And I was back and I knew I was back because about two days later, we had a huge search warrant on like a five acre property with a whole bunch of structures and houses and RVs. And I remember I was in this huge fifth wheel and with two of my partners behind me. And I went up to a door at the very back, like the master room of the fifth wheel. Mm -hmm. You know, I had my AR-15 out of my M4, it was at the time, and I had my hand on the door, and I was waiting for that, you know, that that shoulder tap yeah, for tap my partners. Go, yeah. And as soon as I felt the tap, I didn't even hesitate. I just opened that door and went in, and I button, button hooked to the right and hit the hard corner and cleared the room. And when I said clear, and then I heard my partner yell clear, I just took this big, deep breath. And I thought, holy moly, like, I was, I was afraid right now I was going to get shot yeah, again. Yeah. But I did it. And I remember my partner, he looked over at me. It was the same partner I got shot with. And he fist bumped me. And he just said, welcome back, bud. And we went out, and I was kind of ready to walk out of the trailer. And my sergeant was there. And he looked over backwards over his shoulder, and he just put his fist up as well. And he, and I won't say what he said because there was a cuss word in there, but it was pretty motivating. Yeah. And, he, and then he said, welcome back. And I don't know if they thought maybe I wouldn't be back or what, but I was back. And, you know, there's... There's so much more to tell yeah, when it comes yeah. to mental health and physical recovery and a lot of the lessons I learned, you know, lessons that I talk about in KSL professional mm -hmm. development. Um, but I think for today, you know, that's, that's what I would consider the happy ending. I will tell you, though, before I wrap it up right now, is that that was also just the beginning of the beginning. There was a lot of ups and a lot of downs and a lot of darkness, but and, and a lot of things to overcome. Mm -hmm. But I want, no matter if the listeners hear anything else about this story, again, I just want to end by saying that I'm here, I'm motivated, I'm inspired, I've been well-educated by a lot of good people, and I've been empowered. And, and KSL has been a big part of that. And, I, you know, and I just, again, and I've known you a long time and, and you know, listening to your story and, and dealing with everything. So John is one of those kind of people, by the way, that, you know, if you're challenged with something and you get up in the morning and say, oh, I don't want to go to the gym, I'm too tired, or I don't want to do this, do not use John as your motivation because next thing you know, you'll be running 100 plus miles or, you know, fasting for three days. So I will just preface that before any of you uh, want to follow the John Wilson regiment uh, of, of life. Uh, just I'll, I'll caution you on that. So um, any, anything else you want to add before we close, John? No, there's just so much to talk about, and I want the listeners to know that if you're ever in class with me and I'm ever presenting something, that I always make myself available at the end, uh, literally for anything, questions, comments, complaints, challenges, concerns, but I always get my information out, and I want anybody to know that you're welcome to call me if you need something, if you want to talk about something, um, I'm here for you. Outstanding. All right, everyone, this is uh, the conclusion of Episode 3, Part 2 of the KSL Podcast. I want to thank uh, First John for being on today. Uh, I know we will have him back, and uh, we're looking forward to our next episode, Episode 4, which is the story of Rob Young. Nice. We're going to get to learn about Rob and, and the challenges he's faced 
starting out being a victim of an active shooter while being an elementary school student. Uh, and then what happened to him is in his adult life as well. So thank you for listening. If you want to uh, like and subscribe and follow us, uh, you can also subscribe directly at our website, knowledgesaveslives.com.